Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Of all the apps that you can have on your phone, perhaps the best is the GPS, right? The Maps app. Now, I don't need, I don't need all the apps that are on that little black mirror. I don't, I don't need all the things that are there, right? I don't need um, a Walmart app. I can just go to Walmart. Like, I don't need Candy Crush. I don't need to waste all my life on crushing candy. Uh, but there are some apps that are really good, like the GPS. Like, when, whoever thought of that, whoever came with the technology, it, it's brilliant. And, and I love how uh, the GPS is so gentle with you, like if you get it wrong, you know, like you're, you keep going, and then it'll be like, and you miss your turn, and it'll be like recalculating, and then it gives you a different turn, and options. It's like you can never be wrong. It's always like adjusting and going with you. I, I love that. I, I wish we had that in life, you know? I, I wish there was an app for like when you say something stupid to your spouse, and then it like comes on, it's like recalculating. Let's try that again. Maybe you wanted to say this. Like, oh yeah, that is, that's better, right? I, we, we need that. It's brilliant. But here's the truth, though. No matter how, how gentle it is with you, um, you can just go the wrong way on purpose and, 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 and just following gentle instructions won't get you back on the right course. Like if you, if you said, I want to go to Atlanta today, and you drive north on I-95 heading towards New York, your, 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 your app is going to be like, you can't, you just stop. No, ne- take the next exit. No, take the next exit. Because you just keep going north. And there's no, you can't make a minor course change to get to Atlanta if you're going north on I-95. You can't be like, ah, I think I'll take 301 and just kind of like go over here and that's going to be better. No, you have to stop and turn completely around and go the opposite direction. It is not an evolution, it is a revolution that you need. And some things in life need minor course corrections. You're kind of walking down a road, you need to adjust and do something a little bit different. But some things need revolutions, where you change, where you go, I'm going to get serious about my health. I'm going to get serious about my faith. I'm going to leave that relationship. I'm going to ask her out because I've been too scared to. I am going to take that job. I'm going to quit that job. There are major life decisions that we need to make that are, that are revolutions, not evolutions. And so I want to look at something Jesus taught today, and he's bringing us a new thing. He's bringing the people of his day a new idea and, and really challenging them. And I, as, I, as I read this and as we get into this, I want you to ask yourself, do I need an evolution or do I need a revolution? Do I need, a, 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 do I need to turn over a completely new leaf here? Do I need to change something or do I need a minor course correction? Because as we engage what Jesus says, it's going to nudge us and, and push us a little bit and challenge the way we think. And, and I want you to, to, to dive into that and, and be real about it and, and see where he, where he pushes you. And, and, and my hope and prayer, always when I communicate with you, always when I do this, my hope and prayer is that uh, this gets a hold of you and, and you walk out of this different than you came in, in here. Um, so Jesus is going to push us. Last week we looked at um, him 
offering forgiveness to a guy who had been, his friends cut through a hole in the roof and they lowered this guy down on a mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just heal this guy's sickness or his paralysis. He actually forgives the guy and everybody freaks out because they're like, who is this guy that can just forgive sins? And we talked a lot about forgiveness and how important that is and how we all need that. Um, I want to jump back into it, Luke chapter 5 and, and, and talk about where it goes next. Luke 5, we'll pick up with verse 27. We'll put it up on the screen. Uh, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All right, uh, this is Levi, who uh, other gospels will call Matthew. He's going to be one of the chosen 12 uh, uh, disciples, these apostles that are going to follow Jesus out uh, around for, for a couple years and be his, his closest followers. And, his, and he's a tax collector. Now, we need to understand the social dynamic of this and how this works. So he's a tax collector. He's sitting at his booth. So in the region around Galilee, the area is divided up by different regional governors of the Roman Empire. So when you crossed from one region, so you're walking around the lake, you cross from one region on the road to another region owned, run by a different governor, you have to pay tax there. It's just another way they take the money from you. You're crossing over, and, oh, this is this governor's area, you need to pay a tax to be here. So a tax collector like Levi, his job is to work on behalf of the Roman government and to get tax money out of the people. This made tax collectors very unpopular in Israel because... The Jews there do not like the Romans. They do not like the Roman oppression. They do not like being under the, the Roman rule. They, they think Romans are, are dirty and, and the pagan and all of that stuff. So anybody who works on behalf of the Romans, even if he's a Jew, they don't like him. They look down at him. They're like, oh, you're working for those ugly people, right? It's, it's, that, it's that horrible feeling of like, oh, I can't believe you work for them. So in addition to collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans, the way a tax collector would get paid is to then charge you more so that he can have a little something. So he'll charge you this amount for Roman and then a little more on top so he can get paid. And everybody knows this, and it is viewed as like dishonest work or just kind of dirty work or a dirty profession that, that people shouldn't be involved in. And so they, they, they don't like it. it. It's hard to get at the right feeling of like, what is a modern day profession we might look at with contempt where you would be like, oh, I can't believe you do that. Maybe something like a, a drug dealer where you'd go like, I can't believe you're profiting off of other people's addiction and, and, and doing that. Um, that's kind of how people would look at a tax collector like this one that Jesus comes across. Um, and, I, and I want you to see that because Levi, who's a regular guy, right, um, he probably feels like an outsider, an outcast. I mean, if everybody hates you, and not just him, there's, there's, uh, there's, instructions from rabbis in that day that it was okay to basically hate a tax collector and their entire family. It's like all of their kids are stained by this job and that kind of thing. So he and his entire family feels like uh, a tax collector, uh, a, a, an outcast, an outsider. And so Jesus comes along and welcomes him in. And one way of looking at that is to say, man, Jesus does not know how to pick friends. Right? Because, like, he's, he's picking some rough characters to hang out with. Fishermen, very blue collar. They probably cuss a lot and drink Natty Light or whatever in their day. Uh, uh, and, then, and then he picks a tax collector, and, and that guy's shady and the bad people. And, and, and so you might think Jesus doesn't know how to choose friends. Or another way of looking at that is 
Maybe Jesus moves towards the outsiders and the outcasts. I mean, that's what he said he was about when he started his ministry in Nazareth, when he stood up and proclaimed that. He said, I'm here for the poor and the hurting and the outcasts. And, and so now he's living it out. Jesus moves towards the people that are hurting, that are on the outside, the people for whom life is not working out very well. And this is good news. Again, this is a good news, a good reminder for us, because if we feel like outsiders and if we're hurting, I want you to hear this. Jesus is for you, and he moves towards you, and he would choose you to be part of his circle. So he comes along, and he challenges Levi to follow him, and Levi immediately leaves his stuff and follows him. I don't think that's a supernatural thing. I don't think it's miraculous. Like, oh my goodness, this guy just picked up and dropped everything and followed him. Like, sure, he does it pretty immediately. But I think Levi knew who Jesus was. He had he had probably heard of the miracles, maybe he had seen some, maybe he had been a follower of John before that and knew that someone was coming. So he'd kind of been around the scene for a while. Maybe when Peter caught that miraculous large catch of fish, Levi had to tax it. So he's probably aware of what was going on with that as well. So he, he, he's familiar with it. And Jesus comes and offers him a chance to be on the inside and point him to something greater and, and to leave his career, yes, but to, to follow him around and be part of something and, and, and Jesus offers him that, and Levi takes it. Let's look at what happens uh, next, because uh, it's, it's pretty wild here. He decides to, um, his, his first move here is to throw a party. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclined at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so there's this social di- dynamic. Jesus is with Levi. Levi throws a party. He invites people he knows. What he knows are a lot of other outcasts, tax collectors and sinners. And so in, in the way a house was set up, there'd be a large out sort of a courtyard area in the middle. And so they're probably eating out there in the courtyard, reclining at the table, sitting, laying down, having, having a meal together. It's kind of this party. I'm sure there's wine and all these things sort of flowing. And there are people on the periphery of this who are following Jesus around also, who want to be where he is, who maybe aren't necessarily invited to the party, but they're on the outside. And they are, as described here, religious people, uh, scribes, Pharisees, which are kind of a a religious group of the day, uh, very observant Jews. And, And they don't like what they're seeing. They're seeing this holy guy, Jesus, eating with very unclean or dirty people. Now, understand that in the world today and in the history of the world, there's a, there, there's a real emotion that we all have called disgust, where we are disgusted by something. And a lot of times, disgust has to do with food or things being unclean or germs, but we wouldn't have known germs back then. But we would have this sense of like, oh, that's dirty. Don't go there. Don't be part of that. Don't be with those people. So this is, this is a, a very common thing. I was trying to think of a, of a way to think of it with us today because we, in our culture, we don't do a lot of disgust around food necessarily. But I guess one way to think of it is imagine you have like a dog and you decide to, uh, you know, the dog dies and you go, let's eat the dog. In our culture, we would be like, no, you don't eat dogs. Just not that you can give me like a flavor profile that's wrong or like 
there's nothing about it that you would go like, well, I mean, uh, you know, maybe it's pretty good. Like, you'd be like, no, you just don't do it. But there are cultures in the world today that eating a dog would be acceptable, right? It, for some cultures, a dog is a cute pet. For other cultures, dog is lunch. Like, that is a real thing. And that feeling you get of disgust, like, it doesn't maybe have a logical basis, but just like, ooh, no. That's a little bit of the feeling that the people on the outside of this party are having of Jesus hanging with those people. Ooh, no, you don't, you just don't hang out with tax collectors like this. And, and, and they, they challenge him on that. Um, and Jesus, I love it, he turns this around on them and he goes, look, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. He's not saying that the people he are with are really great, upstanding, moral people. They're not. And, and he's acknowledging that fact. But he's basically saying, look, I'm not here to make nice people nicer. I'm not here to find the most religious people and make them a little more religious. I'm here for people who are hurting. And he, and he points them to, look, it's like, look, the, uh, sick people need doctors. This is what I'm, I'm here for. He's focused on a mission. He's basically like, duh, guys, this is, this is what I'm, I'm about. And I actually think that's a good mission for churches and for followers of Jesus even today. In, in, in 2022 in Richmond, a mission for churches should be we are here for hurting and broken people. Not for, we, we didn't, and, and I thought about this a lot when we planted the church in 2008. We don't start a church to make nice people nicer. We're not trying to find every religious person around the city and gather them in a different building so that they can get together and learn how to be better in, in, in some way. Yes, we want to make disciples. Yes, we want to grow. We want to dive in. But at the end of the day, it's not the healthy who need a, a, a doctor. It, it's the sick. And so we want to find the people that are hurting. We are here because marriages are struggling. We are here because people are anxious. We are here because um, there, are, there are single people that, that, are, that are having to navigate a very complicated and hard dating scene in the world. We are here because there's a lot of addictions that people are getting sucked into and, and struggling with. We're, we're here because there's a lot of anger and, and hatred and pain, and, and we want to help people. We want to do whatever we can. I, I've noticed a, a massive uptick in fear and anxiety over the last couple of years. Have you noticed this as well? Maybe you've, maybe you've felt it. It's almost as if there's an entire media system designed to make you afraid and then sell you a solution. Weird, right? And, and, and I see it. So we're doing a seminar next, next week, uh, May, uh, June 9th and 10th, that weekend, 10th and 11th, that, that weekend. We're doing a seminar here uh, at 2810 called Anxiety and the Peace of God. And we're doing that because we're anxious and God offers a different, a, a different way forward. And a lot of people feel very anxious and social anxiety and, 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 and fear about the future and all that. And we want to spend some time together on a Friday night and a Saturday morning and talk about it and go like, hey, how do we... How do we deal with this? How can we be less anxious? This is why churches are, are here. We're here to help people. People in the worst neighborhoods in Richmond and then people in the nicest neighborhoods in Richmond who are also sick, but they're just hiding it better. So Levi's response to uh, Jesus inviting him and getting into a relationship with Jesus is to throw a party. He basically throws a kegger for his, for, for his buddies. His response to coming to Jesus is not... I think I'll pray more. I think I should fast more regularly. Um, I think I'm going to do a spiritual retreat. No, his response is he throws a party and invites his friends. They're like, I found Jesus. I need you to find him too. And so my question is, 
Who do you know in your work, in home, in school, in your community here in Richmond? Who do you know that needs to meet Jesus, that needs to be in a relationship with God, that needs hope? And can you invite them to meet Jesus? Can you throw a party for them? It could be inviting them to church. I know uh, it doesn't feel like a party in here, typically. Uh, at least not parties I've been to. I don't know. It doesn't feel like that. But there's an opportunity to connect to God here and meet Jesus. Um, and, and if not that, this is why we do Summer of Fun. We do it so that we can get to know each other in, in some fun environments around, around town and around, around Virginia, um, but also so that we can invite friends. So who do you know that you can invite to come with you and say, hey, come hang out with some friends. We're going to go on a hike or we're, we're going to do this fun event. Like, invite someone, make it your goal to say, man, I need, I, I need to do what Levi did here. I need to throw a party for people so, so that they can be connected to Jesus. And when you invite someone to do that, it has a dual purpose. On the one hand, it is for them. It helps them connect to the community of faith and, and ultimately, hopefully, connect to God. This is, we want to connect to God, find your people, change the world. This is what we're here for as a church. So uh, on the one hand, you're helping them connect to God, and that's a beautiful thing when you invite them to get involved. But the other thing it does is it helps you have a purpose and a mission that is greater than just living the American life and, and work and school and, and, and all the things that, that we do. It'll connect you to a higher purpose in your life. I think people are starving for higher purpose and, and, and meaning. And so when you get involved with the community of faith and you start reading the scriptures and understanding it, it, can, it has the effect of shaking you loose from the American rat race. Um, and it reminds you that life is not about, in our cultural context, I would say life is not just about individualism and consuming things and, and economic prosperity and nicer vacations and all of that. Um, there's more going on in life. And Levi got a taste of that. He saw it. I'm sure being a tax collector could be pretty lucrative for him. Probably went pretty well. Um, but he left all of that because he saw something else that would matter more than that. So that's, uh, so that's this party he throws. Look at what happens next because the, the, the conversation continues on. The criticism of Jesus being at this party continues. Verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. All right, there's a couple things to unpack there. On one level, he's talking about fasting. So in their culture, they would voluntarily go without food as part of their devotion to God. We've talked about that a lot before. We've talked about it back in March. We did a, a, a teaching on it, on fasting. I'm a big fan, big believer in it. Uh, there's a lot of spiritual benefit to it. The Pharisees, in their culture, would fast every month. Uh, typically Mondays and Thursdays, they would fast. 
And then they mentioned the disciples of John. Now, John the Baptist, who had come before Jesus, he had gathered quite a following. And John was in prison, and so some of his followers were fasting so that he would be released from prison. And they're fasting and praying, and they're asking God to release John. So the people looking at Jesus are going, you're not doing the Monday-Thursday fast thing like the rest of us religious people are. And even John's disciples, they're fasting right now a lot because they're worried about him in prison. You're just over there having a party. And Jesus basically says, look, I'm here, and this is the moment. uh, uh, The kingdom is happening here. Like, this is what's happening. There will come a day that I'm gone, and they can fast then, and they can remember, and then they can, they can focus. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm here and bringing this new thing. Jesus is bringing a, a, a new paradigm to them. It's, it's a revolution, not an evolution. And he gives them two parables to kind of prove the point. One is about clothing, and one's about wine. So with clothing, he says, you don't take a, a, a new piece of fabric and put it on an old piece of fabric because there's going to be a tearing there and it's not going to work. So the, the new being laid on top of the old is not going to work. And then he gives a similar explanation of wine. He says, you take this new wine and you put it in this old skin that you would store wine in. And if it's old and kind of like, you think like dry rot or it's like started to, to, to rot out a little bit, like the new wine is going to make the old wine skin burst. But if you want new wine, you have to put it in new wineskins. Typically, this is explained like saying Jesus' teaching uh, has a new teaching, so his new teaching is replacing their old teaching. Um, and, and, and that's very challenging, like, oh, I've got a new way of doing things, and, and, and so the new, you know, we have to be careful. You can't mix the new way of doing things with the old way of doing things. That's one way of looking at it, but really... The, the question or the criticism came to him about his disciples, about the people he's with, and it's about the crowd you're pouring into. It's not necessarily about the teaching itself. And Jesus is saying this, look, you can't take these new ideas and just drop them into people that have been steeped in the old ways and in the old ideas. It just, it just so often doesn't work. It doesn't fit um, the the. the you, the new ideas, people who are steeped in the old ways, they're just not ready for it. Think about it. The, the crowd he's with, you've got religious, religious people who, who, who they pray, they fast, they Sabbath, they, they do all of the things, and they do it right, and then Jesus is hanging with sinners, blue-collar people. They're not, they didn't do it all right their whole life. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give this new teaching to a bunch of guys who are already set in their ways and who already think they know what's up. It's very similar to uh, the ancient Stoic philosopher who says it pretty cleanly this way, uh, Epictetus. He said this, it is impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. Right? Isn't that true? It's it's, It's darn near impossible for someone to learn what they think they already know. Have you ever tried to explain something new to somebody who's very much committed to an old way? It's hard, right? You've, I know this. You've had political arguments. You've had fights. Hey, this, what about this? And, and what you run into is that people have a prior commitment, and they have a prior commitment to an old way and a different way and a different thought, and it doesn't matter 
how many facts you have. It doesn't matter how much new data there is. It doesn't matter here are the new facts, now adjust. Like, people don't adjust. We're not good at this. You're not, I'm not, lots of people. We're just not good at this, of adjusting to this new information because we get very committed to our prior beliefs. We don't change our minds. And the Pharisees, those religious people of his day, they had very deeply held religious beliefs. And these were hills for them to die on, and many of them died on those on those hills. And we've seen that play out in our day, in good and bad. We've seen people die for their convictions today in good ways, and we've seen people die for some convictions that were pretty horrible. So Jesus comes along, and he offers a revolution to them. They can have direct access to God. They can pray to God. They can relate to God like a child relates to a father. They can experience the grace of God, the unmerited favor. And he's saying that to a group of people who, for them, the way you get in God's goodness is you earn it. So you follow all the rules correctly, and then God loves you. And Jesus comes along and says, no, God loves you first. Now follow him and obey him. And it's a different way of thinking, and they're just not ready for it. They, 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 can't, they, they can't do it. Who are going to be the last people to accept Jesus' revolution? The people who are very committed to seeing things the old way. This is why at the end he says, no one who drinks um, the old wine will say, I prefer the new. Now, that could be a commentary on wine. Aged wine is better than new wine or something like that. But really, it's, it's a commentary on this. Those of you who are steeped in the old ways, you're going to have a hard time accepting the new. It's just not going to make sense to you because you have such a commitment to these old ways. So let's put ourselves in this story, and we'll kind of wrap up with, with, a, with a couple ideas here. Um, the, the way I was thinking about it is this. All of us build our lives on something. And so we have, let's call them like the first principles or the first things in our lives. These things matter more than anything else. And I don't know what they are for you, but if I was going to maybe rank some of them, maybe you've seen lists like this. If I was going to rank these things like in my life or in the life of, of a lot of followers of Jesus, my priority list, my first principles, kind of first priorities list would look roughly like this. God first. He's top priority. Secondly, my family. Love those people. I'm going to pour into them. Third, uh, this church and family and friends and connections there. Those are, those are my people. That's going to be the third group. And then after that, become a whole lot of things that, that matter to various degrees, a political party or um, patriotism or, you know, love of country or uh, maybe the sports team that I follow or things like that. Like, all of that stuff becomes next in line. Now, maybe for a lot of you, you would say, man, if I had to rank my first principles or priorities, that, that would be, maybe it's something like that. But what I think has happened in this country or in the West in the last few decades is we have started to erode those things and say that they don't matter. Um, and we've taken them out of, of priority lists. We've, we've, we've sort of said God is, either doesn't exist or we just, he's not even on the radar. It just doesn't matter. It's not practical. It doesn't really affect the way I live anything in my life now. So God becomes out. Um, family, uh, we, we have burned some ties with family. And, and we've said, oh man, those people, they don't, they don't get me. And I need to be my own person. And I'm not going to be like them. And so we end up having very strained relationships with families. Some of those 
Relationships have been even more strained over the last couple, uh, couple years. And then uh, church family and friends, we go, man, I don't know, and what people me don't believe everything that I believe, and I don't know if I want to be associated with these people. And so we make our circles smaller and smaller, and we sort of de- degrade, or so th- these things start to disintegrate, these, these top three. And what happens with that when we say those other things aren't as strong, those bonds aren't as strong, or those things don't matter, is all that we are left with is the next things on the list political parties, this uh, sports teams, our patriotism, our ethnic heritage. And what are you seeing in the country? You are seeing, I think, as I survey the landscape, you are seeing those things which should be fourth and below on the list becoming number one. If, if my racial background now is the most important thing, my, my country is now the most important thing, my sports team is now the most important thing, my political party is now, because we've said the other things don't matter that much, and this is where we're at. And so everybody's going to grasp onto something higher, bigger than themselves, meaning, purpose, and we are grasping at things that never really should have been up near the top of, of the list. We're all going to pour our lives out uh, for something, and we, we are becoming, as a culture, highly individualistic, and we're losing the sense of the things that sort of tie us together. G.K. Chesterton, 100 years ago, he said it really well this way. He said, abolish religion, if you like. Throw everything on secular government, if you like. But do not be surprised if a machinery that was never meant to do anything but secure external decency and order fails to secure internal honesty and peace. So what Jesus offers us is a revolution, is a, is a different way, is a, is a first principle, first priority, uh, follow him and he will offer us a different way to live. So first, if you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you, give your life to him, get baptized, we can baptize you today, we can baptize you in the river, we can give your life to him and say, okay, he's going gonna, gonna to reclaim the first spot in my life and I'm going to be obedient to him, I'm going to follow him, I'm going to live for him. But second thing, if, you're, if you are a Christian, I want to challenge you to, to step, step it up here. Um, we tend to get in a loop, I, I, I've experienced in the church, people get in this like rut or this loop of like being a perpetual novice. And we go like, oh, I didn't grow up in the church, therefore I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to read. I don't understand. I, I, I don't understand fasting or I don't know how to Sabbath or any, any, any of those kind of things. There's like all these things and we just say like, I don't do it, I can't. And I get that. It can be overwhelming and nobody wants to feel like an imposter. Imposter syndrome is a big deal. So nobody wants to feel that way. Nobody wants to feel like I'm the dumb person who doesn't know. Everybody read the assignment. I didn't do my homework. You know, like you don't want to feel that way. And I totally get that. I understand that. I just don't get that if you've been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years, Right? Like, we all start there, we just can't all stay there. Like, at some point, you have to do the work and go, I'm going to get a reading plan and read the scripture. I'm going to carve out time to pray, and, I, and I'm going to suck at it, but I'm going to work at it until I get better at it. I'm going to try fasting and, and do this. I'm going to mark out time to, to unplug and, and disconnect. Like, we can't be perpetual novices. That wouldn't work in any other aspect of your life. Imagine if you're at your job, when you started your job, whatever career you're in, when you start your job, you don't know what you're doing. Someone has to show you what you're doing. Imagine 10 years into your job, you walking into your office and being like, I don't know anything I'm doing. I don't understand. I'm just new at this, guys. And, and everybody being like, oh, that's okay. It's like, no, you've been there 10 years. You're a veteran now. 
We, we, ex- we expect that you're leading or stepping up. And so th- the challenge here is step up, engage. This community of faith is only as strong as its members. It is not designed to be a place where you go watch other people perform their faith on your behalf. It is supposed to be all of us coming together and stepping up. And it's supposed to be a participatory thing. We worship together. We sing together. We make disciples together. So lastly, um, I was thinking this week about how we respond to uh, some things that are going on. Uh, obviously, the, the, the shooting in Texas and Buffalo recently, because um, there's a lot of noise about how you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to do and, and how you're supposed to respond to it. Um, and, and, it's, and it's difficult. You know, I, I, see the, I see the things like aimed at pastors where they're like, um, you should, you know, your silence is violence. Okay, and then some people will say like, if this is not the time to, you know, they'll, they'll say this isn't the time to be silent. So I'm like, okay, I get that. And then other people will be like, well, you shouldn't speak up because you don't know and you just maybe sit this one out. And it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I, I don't know. It's difficult just as a follower of Jesus. How do I, what can I engage? How do I engage? Here's a couple things that, that I think we, we should be about right now. Number one is to pray. Uh, Topher talked about this when he was up here. There's lament and, and prayer. Um, and I know thoughts and prayers gets all sorts of grief, uh, but I think intercessory prayer matters, and I think God is at work, and I think the people of God need to pray. And if no one else wants to pray, that's fine. But we will, and we're going to ask God to intervene and, and step up, and we're going to see how he moves and, and how things change when we pray. So one thing we can do in response to the, the, the horrific evil we have seen is to pray. Secondly, I would say this, share your faith with others. Now, that may seem like a weird step to take in light of all this because everyone's trying to figure out, you know, gun control and all of these things, these systemic things and civic things and laws and what are we going to do. Um, my 46 years of life have convinced me that the thing that changes people's hearts is the gospel of Jesus. It just does. It just changes hearts and, and moves people and revolutionizes people. And the best thing we could do is share that with other people and say, hey, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out, but I've met God, and you should too. It's incredible. Follow Jesus and live our lives uh, patterned after him. Um, this is what is needed. If our first principles are about our ethnic background or our racial background or about our country or something like that, if those are our first principles, um, there's a chance people will kill for those things. Um, but if our first principles are more like experiencing living out the love of God through Christ, um, I think that changes people. Now, that may sound like a dated solution to you. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Talk about, tell people about God. Like, that's not going to work. Um, but I think this is one of these situations where the old solution works. And we need, to, we need to double down on it. There's no substitute for Christ getting a hold of your heart. And then... Finally, with that, I would say do the work of discipleship in your home and at the church. Um, there's, a, there's a whole generation of kids growing up in this culture now, and it's, it's new, um, new challenges parents are having to navigate. And in A10 Kids right now, there's kids learning about Jesus in an age-appropriate way. And, and on Sunday nights, there's middle schoolers and high schoolers learning about Jesus. And I would just encourage you to get involved in these spaces to get involved in discipling the next generation. 
being obedient to Christ, following him, getting real about your faith, and then passing it on to the next generation. Every, every person who picks up a gun and shoots someone was someone who could have been discipled, who could have had someone pour into them and mentor them and teach them the way of Jesus. So our faith has to be real, but let me encourage you to step up and get involved and model it for others and pour into this next generation. I, I think this is, this is the hope, um, that, that it will grow, that, that more people will know Christ and they will, they will really show the love of God in their community. So Jesus brings this revolution. I don't know what the next step is for you. I've given you sort of some options here. If it's an evolution, you need to tweak some things, or if it's a revolution, you need to make a radical change. But this is what uh, Jesus offers, and my prayer is that we, that we follow him in it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the revolution that you offer, and uh, God, you are bringing the new wine, and may we be the people who are ready for it, ready to receive, ready to, to be a part of what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.